you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and grab them and turn to Acts chapter 11. Move this out of the way here. Acts chapter 11. We'll be in verses 19 through 26 this morning. Acts chapter 11, 19 through 26. If you're a guest with us, we're so thankful that you're here. We're kind of in this weird, like, in-between state. Well, we're not yet a church, but we're about to be a church. So we're kind of like, what do we still talk about before we become a church? Because I don't know about you, but I'm just kind of ready to walk through a book of the Bible. Uh, These kind of one-off talks are fine. They're good to do. They're important to do. But I'm just ready to walk through the book of the Bible. So starting in two weeks, we're going to open up Mark chapter 1, the first 13 verses. And we're just going to start there and we're going to work our way through the gospel of Mark. Looking forward to that. So as I was thinking about kind of our, our last time together, I thought it'd be useful because I assumed we'd have some guests among us to share a little bit about what we're going to be about as a church. Also thought it'd be really useful to remind us what we're here to actually do. And I find this passage is very, very helpful. So envision this more today as kind of like a rehearsal dinner before the wedding happens. This is kind of what we'll be doing today. As we think about this passage, as I was studying it, something that was kind of pressing on me is the question of what will we be known for? In the coming months and and years, what will the citizens of this city of Fort Worth, non-Christians and Christians, what will they say about Trinity River Baptist Church? Because it isn't if we'll be known, but what we, we will be known for. Our world loves to caricature one another with hashtags, different things. It's like this, uh, recently I took our oldest daughter out on a little bit of a a lunch date. We're just trying to see how she's been doing since we moved from Washington, D.C. And I just asked her the question, what is your most favorite place that we have ever lived? She's only lived in two, Washington, D.C. and Texas. And she looked at me as though it was a very foolish question. And without hesitation, she said, Texas. I said, well, why Texas? She said, because I'm a Texan. <laughs> but amen. It's good discipling right there. Even from an early age, we're seeking to be known for something. I mean, think about the world in which we live. Everyone wants to be known for something. We live in a world that, where people pride themselves in being known for a certain identity, a certain gender, race, occupation occupation or political party. Whatever an individual feels is most significant about themselves, well, they'll they'll do almost anything to be known for that. I mean, this is even in our own corporations, isn't it? In the coming months, we'll see that the corporations aren't merely about what they sell, it's about what they stand for. That's why our society is filled with hashtags and, and flags and different stickers and different things to say, I am this. But what about for us? What will we be known for? Will we embrace the world's ever transient categories? Or will we opt for something that transcends our current cultural moment? Well, thankfully, God's word will give us the clarity we need this morning. And so from our passage, I think there's three things that we as a people should be seeking to be known for. These are three things, and this is my outline. So if you're a note taker, here it is. We should be seeking to be known for preaching Christ, which is verses 19 through 21. 
investing in Christ's church, which is verses 22 through 24. And thirdly, known for Christ alone, verses 25 through 26. We'll say this again for those note takers. We should be known for preaching Christ, verses 19 through 21, investing in Christ's church, which is verses 22 through 24, and known for Christ alone, which is verses 25 through 26. Let's look at God's word now. Listen while I read. Follow along while I read. This is what Luke wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we have parachuted right into the middle of a book at the end of a chapter. So I'm going to give you like a 30,000-foot view. Here is what Acts is about, and I'm going to pretend you know nothing about Acts. Very beginning, Acts chapter 1, this man named Luke says, In my first letter, meaning the gospel according to Luke, I taught you all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in my second letter, what is he saying? I'm letting you know what Jesus continued to do and teach through his Spirit. I think we see in Acts chapter 1 that, that Jesus is saying, I'm about to go be with my Father, but you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you do, what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if you want to know what the book of Acts is about, it's about that. How the gospel went to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is not some strategy manual. If we can figure out the secret formula, we can make Acts chapter 2 happen again. It's simply telling us how did the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And we see that the Spirit comes just as Jesus promised, and people begin to come to faith in Christ. Well, then in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we see what Jesus actually meant when he said the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. We see there that Peter is up on this house, and he's praying, and he sees this vision where he's seeing these animals that he's supposed to avoid and never kill or eat. And God is saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says it three times. What I have called clean, you don't call common. And then he receives this message from a man saying, hey, there's someone named Cornelius that wants to come and see you. And Peter goes, he's obedient to the Spirit of God, and he preaches the gospel, and this first Gentile family believes. And brothers and sisters, this is so significant in salvation history. It means that we can be brought in. That salvation is not just for the Jews only. It is for all who will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was such a significant thing that when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, people are stunned that he would go and have dinner with the, with the Gentiles. 
But do you remember what Peter says in Acts eleven seventeen? His defense, if then God gave the same gift, meaning the Spirit, to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Our passage this morning is basically a continuation of what Jesus actually meant that the gospel was going to go to the ends of the earth. It's assurance that Jesus' promise has come true. And the first thing I want us to notice out of our passage is this. These believers here in particular were known for preaching Christ, and so should we. Look at verse 19 through 21 again. Let's read there again. It says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and in Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here Luke mentions in Acts chapter, 19, or Acts chapter 11, verse 19, that there was this persecution this, that happened. There's this scattering that happened over persecution. Well, we see that in Acts 7. Peter, or uh, Peter, excuse me, Stephen is there, he's martyred and killed, and from this martyring, these Christians begin to scatter and spread. Luke tells us that these believers went as far as Cyprus and Cyrene, and lastly Antioch. Literally, he's saying they went hundreds and thousands of miles away. That's how severe this persecution was. And Luke tells us next what happened, or what these persecuted believers did. What did they do? What says in verse 20, or in verse 19 and 20, that they continued to talk about Jesus. That no matter where they went, they kept sharing about Jesus Christ, but initially to Jews only. But then we see in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. These are non-Jewish people, Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people turned to the Lord. So these people are scattered, and yet they continue to preach the gospel, and Jesus is faithful, and he saves people for himself. Are you seeing what's happening here? Have you noticed a trend? That God, in his strange and mysterious providence, is using a tragedy to draw people unto himself. God used the death of a servant to bring life to those who were far from him. God used death to bring life. God used Stephen's death to to cause persecution, to, to spread these believers all over. I mean, just think about it. This persecution was meant to stop the message of Jesus, and it only spread the message of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you were having a hard time today, doubting God's faithfulness. If you're having a hard time doubting God's providence, look no further than the book of Acts, where God used tragedy to bring about triumph, where God took that which was evil and redeemed it for good. But yet, look at the cross of Christ. The only sinless man to ever live was crucified in the place of sinners. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might be made right with God. I mean, can you imagine those disciples who had followed Jesus for three years, thinking that he was the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel, and all of a sudden he's crucified on a cross? Made no sense. But God took the enemy's weapon of death and used it against him. Jesus took on death so that death would be defeated forever. That's the hope that we have. 
in, as believers in the Lord Jesus, that God would redeem that which is evil for good. Jesus suffered a tragic death so that those who would repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ would triumph over death in the end. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope that you find encouragement from this today. And for those among us who aren't Christians, we're so thankful that you're here. You're always welcome to be here. But have you ever considered that God might be sending afflictions and trials your way to drive you to the end of yourself, straight into the arms of Jesus? If that's you today, if you feel like you've come to the end of yourself, you've come to the right place today. We'd be happy to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus and have your sins forgiven. If you're not a Christian and you've come, you're welcome. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, ask the person next to you or Ben and I will be at the doors afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about that. And for the believers in the room, have you considered that God might be using the pain and the trials and the tragedies of your life to declare the gospel to those who are far from him? Have you considered that situation you're dealing with right now might be a means that God has given you to be faithful and to declare that he is faithful to those who are far from him? Reminded of my, my grandfather as I was studying this, he for years had a, a skin cancer on his face that keeps coming back in the same place over and over again. He continues to go to the same doctor. And for years he's been sharing the gospel with this doctor and he finally said, look, God is going to keep giving me this cancer until you come to faith in Christ, so you might as well get on with it. <laughs> for both of our sakes, you might as well believe. I love his trust in the Lord there. This inconvenience in his life, this tragedy, he's saying, I trust that God's given this to me for his sake. Think about saints throughout history, just examples of believers throughout history who have experienced what we would call an absolute tragedy. Think about Joni Erickson Tata, paralyzed at 18, and for the rest of her days, what has she done? Faithfully tell other people about Jesus and how they can have their sins forgiven. Think about Elizabeth Elliot, the sister whose husband was killed what does she do? Does she run away? No, she goes back to the very people who killed her husband and she tells them how they can have their sins forgiven. History is filled with brothers and sisters who did not sulk in their suffering, but they declared the goodness and kindness of God and how they can have their sins forgiven to other people. And I don't want to make light of your tragedy that you might be going through, the suffering you might be experiencing right now, but I would encourage you to, to lift your eyes beyond your current moment to the one who crushed his son for you so that your sins would be forgiven. If you can trust him to save you from your sins, you can trust him in the midst of the circumstance you find yourself in today. Here we see that, that God, he redeems a tragedy, the persecution of a brother, to send the gospel forward and to bring those who are far from him near to him. Let's pray for one another that we would leverage the hardships of this life for the glory of God and the good of other people. But I do want you to notice something here, that God did the scattering, but these people did the sharing. God scatters them. They go far. They probably go to places they didn't want to go, probably far from family and friends, and yet what do they do? They don't stop talking about Jesus. So what's the lesson for us? Don't stop talking about Jesus wherever God sends you. Wherever God places you, don't stop talking about Jesus. And notice, too, that they didn't just share with the people who looked like them and lived like them. I love these brothers who just had the idea. They probably had not heard about Peter and Cornelius. And what do they do? They see these people over there gathering who aren't Jews. They're Hellenists. And they say, well, 
why don't they need to hear about Jesus? Why don't they, they need to know how to be reconciled to God? So regardless of who God puts in your way, regardless of how different they might be from you, never assume that someone is too far gone for God to save them. Never assume that. So be faithful to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those, whoever God puts in your way this week. Whether it be a brief contact or someone in your work, at your work, or someone in your neighborhood, faithfully proclaim the message of Jesus. I would love nothing more that if people talked about Trinity River Baptist Church in Fort Worth, they would just say, those are those gospel preaching people. They just talk a lot about what Jesus has done for sinners. I would love to be known for that. Corporately and individually. And that's something we need to pray and labor towards. Let's be those people who leverage the hardest situations of life, the hardest pain this life has to offer as another way to praise God and give him glory for it. As another way to share about people who can have their sins forgiven. So these believers, in the midst of trial, continue to preach Christ. Well, not only that, we see they continue to invest in Christ's church. My second point, investing in Christ's church. This is what I want us to be known for, and this is what these believers were known for as well. We see this in verses 22 through 24. Listen along as I read. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So we see that the the church here in Jerusalem, they get wind of what's happening in Antioch, and they want to encourage the work that God is doing there. So who do they send? Well, none none other than the son of encouragement. We read in Acts chapter 4 that that's what Barnabas, that's what his name meant, that he was a son of encouragement. And clearly, it wasn't just his name, it was actually who he was. We read later in Acts chapter 9 that when Saul comes to Jerusalem after his conversion, the disciples want nothing to do with him except one. It was Barnabas. Barnabas came along Saul, loved him and encouraged him, and he brought him to the apostles. We see in verse 24 here that Luke calls him a, a good man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Jerusalem sent out a worker, they did not send a man ill-equipped. They sent out their best to encourage brothers and sisters elsewhere. For the men in the room, could TRBC send you out to another church and you have the same effect on that church? Would that church call you a son of encouragement? Why wouldn't that be you? Brothers and sisters, as a church, this is something we want to be praying for. That God would raise up faithful brothers and sisters who would be known as encouraging the grace of God in other people's lives. We want to pray that that God would raise up among ourselves men who were faithful and qualified that we could send to other churches in our city and in other places that might be a blessing to other believers. That's something we should seek after. That's something we should be praying for. Here we see that Barnabas was sent to check 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 in on what was going on in Antioch, but he was sent by Jerusalem. Why did Jerusalem do this? Why, why did they feel a responsibility for believers in a city that was far from them? I mean, it was not easy to get there. Some almost 500 miles away. Why would they do this? Because the local churches has, have a responsibility to care for other local churches. Local churches have a responsibility to care for believers not only in their building, but in other places and across other time zones. 
Did you know that this is how TRBC got started? Though there was a pastor friend of mine encouraged me to come, and there was this bald man who worked for a Christian publisher who was encouraging me to come named Scott Corbin. What really sold me on the thing to come to Fort Worth, because we had lived here before. I'm like, there's a billion churches there. We don't need another one. What sold me was this. There were 12 churches who met October of 2021 that said, we think we need more healthy churches in Fort Worth, Texas. It was other pastors and other churches being concerned about believers and churches in Fort Worth that caused Trinity River Baptist Church to happen. That's the reason this thing exists today. is because other Christians were concerned not only about what's going on in their own buildings, but they were concerned about what God might be doing in Fort Worth, Texas. They were concerned about believers being cared for well and non-Christians knowing about who God is and how to be made right with Him. TRBC is a byproduct of other churches being concerned about other believers. And let's be clear, whatever happens in this church, God gets all the glory for it. God will get all the praise for whatever happens among us, but God does work through means, and these churches were the means in which God has brought this church about. Church in Jerusalem sets an example for all of us for what it looks like to support gospel work all over the world, no matter how far it might be or how costly it might be. I love here in verse 23, it tells us what what Barnabas found when he got there. Look at verse 23. What did he he find when he shows up in Antioch? says this, when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What does it mean to see the grace of God? How do we see the grace of God in people's lives? Well, I think here in verse 23, it gives us some, some context of what it means. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord. So seeing the grace of God is seeing people transfer their loyalty from sin and the world to Jesus. Seeing the grace of God is seeing believers love one another despite their differences. I think this is exactly what he saw. I think when he showed up, he saw people repenting of sin, placing their faith in Jesus, and loving and caring for one another. And he was glad. And brothers and sisters, since the initial meeting we had at the Corbin's house last March, all I have seen in all of your lives is the grace of God. And it has made me glad. And so many of your lives, I could go around this room today and just point out different people. Here's how I've seen the grace of God. I can't cover everyone, but I do want to just share a few examples. So don't get your feelings hurt if I don't mention you, and don't get embarrassed if I do mention you. (laughs) So for example, our our sister, Sophie Kazarian. If you don't know Sophie, Sophie grew up in an atheist household. I don't know if she's upstairs or wherever she is. She's at childcare, so she's not going to get this. She grew up in an atheist household, and somehow she became a Christian. That story, that testimony, and we could give examples of this in membership interviews, of how God has been so merciful to so many people. Scott and Jesse Corbin, you guys have been waving the TRBC banner since day one. While we were in D.C., you were hosting people like crazy, so much so that we're going to pass out bumper stickers. It says, if you've had dinner at the Corbin's house, honk your horn. (laughs) You have welcomed people the way Christ has welcomed you. And I've been so encouraged by it. Lindsay Armerding, when I got on the ground, I was not so much stressed about how many people we were going to have or where we were going to meet. I was stressed about what we were going to do with all these kids. 
And you, by God's grace, have taken our children's ministry, and you've ran with it. And I've been so encouraged by how you've done that. We have a safe environment where our kids get to hear about the gospel. So thank you for doing that. Jonathan and Debbie, you guys, you just, you're like a storage unit. You just hold a bunch of stuff in your house all the time. You hosted our family for a few months. Now you're hosting all the, the child care equipment. Thank you for your willingness to open up our home, your home. And Cole, there's just you. You're just great. You're always happy. <laughs> happy in the Lord. Haley Moss, your husband one time said, my wife is really good at social media. And that was an understatement. <laughs> Sister, you do such an amazing job. Thank you for how you labor for our church through how you can use your skill set to just get the word out there about the gospel and about our local church. It's been a huge blessing. Conrad Mills, wherever Conrad is, you, you do a thankless job getting this room set up every week, but you have humility and character in how you do it. Thank you for representing Christ well to this school and to us and how you serve our body every week, brother. Thank you for that. Uh, Bill and Laura Heinrich and Jill Botticelli, you guys have been just visible evidence of God's sustaining grace with all that you've gone through in your life, through the passing of your son Daniel and through the passing of Jill's husband Benny, that you continue to trust the Lord even through trial and loss. I'm so encouraged by your faith. Thank you for continuing to trust the Lord. There's so many other examples. I mean, former NRH folks, NRHBC folks, like the Helms and Jack Crow and the Owens. Just God's sustaining grace over the last 10 years has been so encouraging. John and Jess McGlott, you want to be serving on the mission field, and instead of doing that, what do you do? You move your family to Fort Worth, Texas to help plant this church. Lily Park, you're the definition of happy in Jesus. You're just always encouraging and so encouraged by that. The Wednesday morning dudes group who meets to read a book and encourage one another. Just how you love God's word and love one another is so encouraging to me. Janae Atkinson and her prayer nights. I mean, all the former CHBC people who understand what we're trying to do here has been a huge encouragement. Blake McKinney's an Alabama fan. Roll Tide. All those things <laughs> are huge encouragements to me. I mean, I literally could go on about the McKinney's and the Pierce's and the Powell's and the Fisher's and the Kinney's and the Mills. Everybody, the councilmen's of how I've seen the grace of God is evident in all of your lives. And I'm thankful I get to be a witness to it. So thank you for being faithful to Jesus wherever he's placed you. And my encouragement, my exhortation is to continue to remain faithful to Jesus with steadfast purpose. He has began a good work in you and he will bring it to completion. So continue to trust him in every season that we have together. Continue to display the love of God in you and through you to one another. That's why he's placed us here so that his grace might be more visible to the watching world. I pray that, that non-Christians would come among us and they would marvel by what, what is taking place here because God's grace is visible and evident. But I love here this investment that Jerusalem made with Barnabas. It didn't stop there. Antioch doesn't just hoard the grace of God. They begin to extend the grace of God to other people. Antioch doesn't become just a footnote in salvation history. If you look down to verses 27 through 30, we see that there's a prophecy about these, this famine is going to come in their land. And what do these new believers, what do they do? Instead of saying, well, as long as we've got our stuff, we're good. What do they do? Well, we see in verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability, ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They experienced the grace of God. And what was their first thought? How can we serve and care for brothers who are hurting far from us? 
Even in Acts chapter 13, we see that Paul and or Saul and Barnabas are there again in Antioch, and they're, they're praying, and they're singing, and they're preaching God's word. The Spirit of God says, set apart for me, Paul, Saul, and Barnabas, for a work I have. And who is it the Lord was speaking to? To the saints there at Antioch. And what do they do? They don't say, no, we love Saul and Barnabas. Let us stay with them forever. No, they send them so that God's grace might be more clear around the world, so that the gospel would continue to go forward. So brothers and sisters, this blessing, this investment that we have received from other churches is not to be kept just inside of this room. It is our responsibility to take this investment that we've received from other churches and be concerned about the health and well-being of brothers and sisters in this city and beyond. It is our responsibility to be concerned about how other believers are doing in this state, in our nation, in our world, and seek to bless them and serve them. And as long as I'm one of the pastors at TRBC, this is what we're going to pursue. We're going to do our best to disciple people well, to live their lives faithful to Jesus wherever he places them. We're going to do our best to train soon-to-be pastors that we can send out to, to our community and to Texas. We're going to do our best to train up and disciple missionaries who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to do everything we can to support the work of the ministry all around because we realize what we've received in the grace of God and the kindness of his people. We want to take the investment we've received from Southside Baptist Church and Cedar Point Baptist Church and High Point Baptist Church and Champion Forest Baptist Church and Westgate Memorial Baptist Church and all these others by investing in Christ's work all over the world. We are not going to be hoarders of God's grace. We want to be extenders of God's grace, fully aware of all that we've received and longing and anticipating that God is eager to work in other places. And we're thankful that we get to work alongside him in that process. That's what we're going to be after here. So if you're thinking about joining, this is what you should think we're going to be doing. Preaching God's word, discipling people, and sending them wherever God might have them go so that other people might be built up and encouraged by what God is doing. Not only do we want to be known for preaching Christ and supporting Christ's work, the last thing is we want to be known for Christ alone. Known for Christ alone. This is my third and final point. We'll see this is in verses 25 through 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas goes and finds his old friend Saul, and he wants to build up the saints there to encourage them to continue to be faithful in the Lord Jesus. And then he mentions something that we would often pass over. It's kind of a footnote in verse 26. He says this, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, it doesn't say that these disciples called themselves Christians. It says they were called Christians, meaning that they were living in such a way in the community of Antioch that people identified them as Christ's people. That's literally what it means. What were they doing to be identified as Christ's people? Better yet, what will we do in Fort Worth, Texas to be known as Christ's people? And if you notice this, but this is the land of nominal Christianity. Everyone you talk to, they go to church. Oh, I go to church. I know Jesus. I go to church. What will we do to make the gospel more clear that those who are far from Jesus might know how to be made right with him? Well, I think a few things, a few examples we see here. I think the first thing is this, is they, they were set apart in the community by what they believed and taught. They believed and declared that Jesus was the anointed one of God. That the only way to be made right with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that he was raised from the dead from their justification, and that one day he would return to judge the living and the dead. They were marked off by the message of Jesus. They abandoned their former way of living for the sake of following Jesus. It was evident in their teaching. The next is how they loved one another. We don't see it in the passage. I think it's very clear because Antioch was this mega city. At the time, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had over 500,000 people living in it. And you have to imagine there was many different cultures and different races and different backgrounds in this city. So if people are getting saved from the city, you have to imagine it was a diverse group of people that were gathered together in this church. They were primed for dysfunction and disunity. But they weren't known as a, a dysfunctional bunch or a disunified bunch. If that was true, the power of God, the gospel would have no, it would have no validity among, among the people. It would be mocked. That's not what it says. Now, I think they clarified the gospel to the, the people of Antioch because of how they love one another. That despite their differences, their willingness to forbear with one another and to care for one another, despite differences, made the gospel more visible, just like we talked about last week with unity. I think this is probably what they experienced. The world knew they were Christ's disciples because of their love for one another. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to get a copy of a book called The Compelling Community by Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever. Jamie actually wrote the book. Mark doesn't really do, didn't do anything with it. Anyways. And in the book... Jamie shares a story about Capitol Hill Baptist Church, church that I came from, one of our supporting churches, about a guy named Bill. And I don't know Bill, so this is actually a true story. Bill first came to CHBC when he was in his 60s. He was not a Christian. He was actually a Harvard professor, and he taught about the madness of crowds. Kind of what, why people gather, and what they do, and why they come together. So he would talk about the different things, like the mass psychology of examining the phenomena of the New England witch hunts and urban legends and financial panics. Though he studied crowds for his whole life, the local church gave him no category. He had no category for it. So he first came to CHBC, and he was struck by how people love one another. So much so, again, Bill was not a Christian when he first got there. It says this. This is what Bill says. It was striking from the first moments I came through the door. It was clear that something special was going on. The relationship seemed not so much unnatural as highly uncommon. So I was introduced to the idea of a healthy church, a concept that had before eluded me. And it was through this church's corporate witness of their love for one another that Bill eventually came to faith in Christ. A man who studied crowds had no category for believers loving one another despite their differences. I think that's probably what happened in Antioch. Very different group of people, different backgrounds, different places, and yet the gospel became more clear because of their love for one another. I think the last thing is this, is how they lived in the world. I think they did exactly what Barnabas told them to do. They remained faithful to the Lord Jesus with steadfast purpose. So as husbands and wives, as children, as workers, they were very much defined by following Jesus. They lived lives of integrity and character, and they were faithful in all that they had been given to do. And I think their lives confirmed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, with the people in your neighborhood or at your work, or any family member, would they be surprised today to find out that you're a Christian? Would anybody in your life be surprised to know that you follow Jesus? Your confession that Jesus is Lord on Sunday, is it seen and heard in your life on Monday? Would anybody be surprised in your life to know that you are following Jesus? Does your life confirm that Jesus is risen from the dead and there's life in his name? 
This is what I hope our life together does. I hope that we make very evident that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. I hope it becomes very clear to everyone around us, those who are confused that they're Christians and those who aren't Christians, that this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be Christ's people. That the gospel would just become very visible to all around us. But you need to understand this, just as we heard last week. Satan does not want this to happen. In the days ahead, Satan will do everything he possibly can to make sure that we're known for something else. Not only corporately, but individually. Known for our political loyalties. Known for our hobbies, or our finances, or our families. And we must fight and pray and labor to say we will be known for nothing else than Christ and Christ alone. Let it be our prayer, what the Apostle Paul prayed, that whether by my life or my death, only that Christ would be glorified in my body. Let's pray that that would happen in our church and in our lives. As we conclude, I was thinking about a story that I heard years ago about a pastor named Ray, who's a retired pastor now. And he wrote an article on Desiring God called 10 Unforgettable Lessons from Fatherhood. It's about his dad, who actually was in ministry for a long time. But these are the, the lessons he learned from him as a father. And in it, number 10, he shares a story about when his dad passed away. That he and his wife happened to be in Ireland and away, and he was unaware that his dad was soon to pass. And so finally, he, he gets word that, from his sister that his dad has died. Didn't get a final conversation with him. But his dad left some last words for him. And he said this, Tell Bud, ministry isn't everything. Jesus is. And as one of your soon-to-be pastors, I feel like that's my job in your life. Is to remind you every single week that though your family is important and you should love them well, they aren't everything. But Jesus is. To remind you that though your career is important and you should work hard and labor hard in it, it isn't everything Jesus is. That the situation that you find yourself in, though it is significant and important, it isn't everything Jesus is. I think this is my job in your life because this is your job in the world. It's your job in the world to tell the citizens of Fort Worth and wherever you find yourself, in, in Texas and around the world, to say, this world is significant and it is important, but it isn't everything. Jesus is. Oh, it is my prayer that that's what we'll be known for, telling other people that there's no greater joy than knowing and loving Jesus. Letting people know every opportunity that we get, that we declare with our lives and with our words, that our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul and life and death to our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, heaven, we, Father in heaven, we, we do come before you thankful that you've opened our eyes to see that Jesus is everything. Father, we, we thank you for the privilege each and every week to gather to proclaim that truth. And Lord, as we pre prepare to become a church next week, Father, we, we pray 
that as long as this church has life and opportunity, that we would be known for nothing else than Jesus Christ and what he has done in his death and his resurrection and what he has yet to do. Father, we pray that you would mark us off as a church and as individuals, as people who declare with our lives and with our words that there's nothing greater than knowing and loving Jesus. Father, we pray that you would cause people to be born again through our life together as a church. Get glory for yourself in doing so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.